What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 118, The House of Aten. This is part two in our exploration of Akhenaten's religion. We've seen its expression and precedence in solar hymns. Now, it's time to see what the pharaoh actually did when worshipping his god. More importantly, we will see where he did it visiting the magnificent temples erected in the city of Arket Aten. This episode of the History of Egypt was brought to you by Stefan Pjellström and Laurent Vermeer, who generously donated to the show. Stefan, Laurent, thank you very much for your support. I hope this episode brings you satisfaction. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. When Akhenaten decided to set up his new royal residence at Akhet Aten, he naturally made provision for the religious facilities he would need to glorify the sun god. Every Egyptian city, every palatial compound, needed its shrines and temples, and the horizon of Aten was no exception. From the very beginning, maybe before anything else, Akhenaten commissioned new temples, divine houses, for service to his god. In the central city, there are two major temples, one large, one small. As you can guess, we generally call the smaller temple, wait for it, the small Aten temple. The larger one is the great temple. They have ancient names, which I will use later, but if you're looking at any modern map, the great and small temples are what you will find. The two Aten temples are located in the central city, the administrative and religious heart of Arket Aten. Along with the great palace and central food depot, which we explored in episode 114, the magnificent sanctuaries define the core of Akhenaten's new home. As we will see, they are splendid and grand. Both temples are oriented west to east, with their entrance facing the Nile River and their altars pointed towards the sunrise. Originally, they probably connected to the Nile via processional roads and stone jetties, or keys, dedicated to their use. Unfortunately, the ancient riverbank is lost, destroyed by movement and agricultural use. But it's quite likely the two temples were connected to the river, much like Karnak or Luxor and many others. So as we explore these monuments, keep this basic image in mind two grand edifices facing to the east and approached from the river. We'll begin our visit at the northern end of the central city, approaching the structure called the Great Aten Temple. This was a vast edifice, one of the largest in the whole region. With a high guardian wall and several smaller structures within it, the Great Aten Temple was a monumental edifice dwarfing everything around. 
Let's take a look. In terms of physical dimensions, the Great Temple was a monster, 800 meters long and 300 wide, with a footprint of 240,000 square meters, about 59 acres for my USA friends. As we explore, don't be surprised if you feel rather tiny by comparison. The Great Temple was composed of two main parts, a long processional temple at the western end and a smaller sanctuary at the eastern. Both of these sub-temples were separate from one another and surrounded by huge stretches of open ground. Which means that the Great Temple is a bit deceptive. From outside, it looks vast, but once you get in, it seems almost empty. To approach the Great Aten Temple, you had two options. If you were an employee or local official, you might be coming along the Royal Road, which ran through the central city and connected the Great Temple with the other amenities of this quarter. Or, you might approach from the Nile, from a small stone quay nestled at the water's edge, from which a path led up the riverbank and headed eastward, until you reached the gates of the enormous home of the god. And a home it was. The ancient name for the great temple was the Per Aten, the House of Aten. This was an umbrella term covering the entire sacred space and the two sub-temples I just mentioned. The Per Aten was the conceptual heart of the city, the place where Aten dwelled most visibly on earth. Like any Egyptian temple, the House of Aten began with a pair of pylons made of mud brick, which faced towards the Nile on the western end of the site. These pylons rose high and probably featured flagpoles attached to the front. Between them, a gateway stretched wide with a rather distinctive feature. The lintel above the entrance was left intentionally broken or separated. Rather than place a block across the width of the doorway like a normal temple, Akhenaten's architects left a gap in the masonry. This gap allowed light to pass through the door without interruption, right down to the architectural setup, the designers wanted the temples to maximize light. Behind these pylons and the gate, you entered a wide open space, the forecourt, again just like a normal Egyptian temple. Ahead of you, another pair of tall pylons marked the beginning of the temple itself. This first structure is one of the two sub-temples I mentioned earlier. Today, we tend to call it the Long Temple, which you don't need to remember, but it's there if you want to look it up. Crossing the courtyard and passing through the second set of pylons, again with a broken lintel to let in the light, you would find yourself coming into a colonnade. Sixteen immense columns, shaped like papyrus bundles, filled a hall just behind the doors. These columns towered overhead, ten meters tall at least, with beams of stone, architraves, stretching between them. Apart from those beams, the hall was unroofed, so while there were shadows, light would still filter down into the forest of papyrus-carved stone. From the columned hall, you then came into a long courtyard. This section was open to the sky and took the form of a long rectangle heading east with a processional road going down the centre. Pretty standard by some Egyptian conventions, but in the middle of that road there was something new. A tall podium with steps leading up to it dominated the centre of this space. On it stood a raised platform, a rostrum of sorts, for the king and his family to make offerings to the sun. 
As they entered the first sections of the temple, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their daughters needed to make offerings to the sun god, a housewarming gift, if you will. But they couldn't do that on the ground among the common folk, so the king commissioned a raised platform, elevating himself above the rest, so that all could watch as he made offerings to the god, and the Aten could see him, distinct and separate from the rest of humanity. When we see this platform in the artwork, Akhenaten stands atop the structure, arms raised while the beams of Aten shine down upon him. In life, it must have been quite the sight to behold, as Pharaoh, in all his glittering regalia, made the first offerings of a new day to the glowing orb of the rising sun. Pharaoh's podium was probably made of stone. We can guess that because later on, people demolished it, carrying away all the blocks to reuse on their own projects. When they tore the stones out, they left a broken gash in the foundations on which it rested. Thanks to this hole, we are able to locate a structure that might otherwise have disappeared. Apart from the raised platform, this long courtyard also has another curious feature. Flanking the processional route and filling much of the courtyard, a series of square piers or platforms stood about waist high. These smaller platforms marched in series, four wide and two dozen long, a half-size forest on either side of the central path. What were these little platforms? Well, the great temple, the House of Aten, featured a rather distinctive element, one that, until recently, seemed to be unique. All throughout the structure, filling various courts and spaces, were a huge number of offering tables. These were quite simple, small platforms made of bricks, designed to hold the weight of offerings. Flowers, bread, beer, fruit, and meat piled up on top of them, and we see this in the artistic depictions, where the tables practically overflow with all good things. In terms of art, these offering tables are perhaps the most common motif that we see at Amana. The various scenes show dozens, hundreds of these things, loaded with goods for the glory of the sun god. The thing is, that artistic repetition isn't a fantasy. These offering tables are everywhere. Even by conservative estimates, the great Aten temple may have had nearly 2,000 individual tables. 2,000 brick platforms loaded with the bounties of farm, bakery, brewery, and garden. This temple was literally filled with every sort of abundance. The phenomenon of offering tables, and the sheer number of them, is quite interesting. Traditionally, a god's temple received many goods, daily deliveries of food and drink in large quantities. However, all of that bread, beer, meat, and produce could pile up quite quickly, and there's no hard evidence to suggest that the priests offered every single bit to the god's statue. Logistically, it would be much easier to offer a portion of each item, a cut of meat, a jug of beer or wine, a few loaves of bread, and then you could count the rest of the goods as blessed by association. Why go to the trouble of doing every bit when you could let one portion stand in for the rest? Much simpler, right? Well, Akhenaten seems to have thought differently from that older model. The huge number of offering tables and the artistic scenes of goods overflowing suggests that the pharaoh took the idea of nourishing his god quite strictly. 
When it came to giving Aten his daily sustenance, Akhenaten made sure that the house of Aten was full of good things. Normally, we might think this was just an artistic fantasy, an exaggeration, but the sheer number of offering tables which actually existed suggests that maybe he took it literally. These ideas of abundance and tables groaning with the bounties of the land are something I'll return to in future when we look at the religion in a big picture overview. For now, it's enough to know that the iconography and the temple archaeology suggest that the king filled his sacred spaces with offerings to the sun god. On a good day, a visitor may have seen tables absolutely piled with all sorts of delicious things. This image could have been profound, and it speaks to the depths of Akhenaten's conviction and the scale of the resources at his command. Apart from the offering tables, the rest of this first section in the Great Aten Temple is not particularly remarkable. There's another series of courts, some colonnades, some statues of the king, and some final altars at the eastern end, from which Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their daughters would have made their most private offerings to the sun god. At the back of the Great Aten Temple, separate from the first section, there is another part that I'd like to explore. This is the Great Temple's secret sanctuary. The sanctuary is the easternmost component of the House of Aten. It seems to be a replacement for the Holy of Holies, the home of the god statue that you would find in a traditional temple. Of course, Aten had no statues, only light. So the sanctuary of the Per Aten is a small structure with no doors or roof, just an open-topped hall made of limestone, which presumably tended to be quite bright in the daytime sunlight. On a sunny day, this structure probably shone a beacon of blinding, purified white. For anyone coming close, it may have seemed quite dazzling. The purpose of this sanctuary is not exactly clear. We can guess that maybe it was the private worship space for Akhenaten and his family. If the other sections of this complex were a bit more accessible to the public, then maybe Pharaoh wanted a place where he could worship the god away from prying eyes. Then again, it seems like the sanctuary itself was kind of open as well. It didn't have doors, and it's in the middle of a vast open space where, in theory, you could fit a huge crowd of people. So maybe it's sort of a semi-hidden space, one that the average person couldn't view, but for a privileged few, there was an opportunity to gaze into the sanctuary as the king, queen, and princesses of Egypt made their offerings to Aten high above. The sanctuary of the great temple, which is replicated as well in the smaller temple, has an interesting extra feature. Around the base, there was a low mound of rubble covered in gypsum concrete, which rose up against the walls. This rubble surrounded the structure on three sides, and it seems to have given the shrine the appearance of rising from a sort of bank or mound feature. The exact purpose of this is unclear, but for my money, the most likely bet is that this mound was intended to symbolize the Benben, the primeval mound from which the great creator deity had emerged way back in the infinite waters of the universe. If that's true, it would make this sanctuary the center of the universe, the center of Arket Aten and the world itself. 
The great temple, the Per Aten, is the pièce de résistance of Akhenaten's religious landscape. He could move his residence to a new location, he could commission boundary stelae to define the city borders, and he could locate his tomb in a valley from which the sun itself seemed to emerge. He could fill the spaces of the homes of his loyal followers, but all of that meant nothing if the sun god did not have his proper home. The Per Aten, the House of Aten, was that home on earth. After the break, we will visit the second, smaller temple to Aten. Then, we will bring the archaeological and artistic material together to explore some of the ideas which seem to be coming through in the design and use of these temples. Akhenaten's brand of religious worship seems to have some distinctive characteristics, and maybe we can tease a couple of them out from the ruins of his city. That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. We now head towards the southern end of the central city, walking along the main road, approaching the structure called the Small Aten Temple. The Small Aten Temple was not that small, just smaller than the Great Temple. Here, the walls still ran 192 meters long and 111 wide, that's 630 by 364 feet, and the columns stood nearly 9 meters tall, 28 feet. The architraves and roofing beams were taller still, and the great pylons probably reached a whopping 12 to 13 meters, up to 43 feet in height. The fact that we call this the small temple just proves the old saying, everything is bigger in Pharaonic Egypt. When you visited the small temple, you approached it from the west. Chances are, you came from the river, walking up the bank and along the roadway. Or, you came from the great palace, whose southern wall featured a small gateway opening onto an orchard of trees. This orchard and the path that ran through it led to the pylons of the small Aten temple, a pleasant shady stroll with a cool breeze off the river. Quite a lovely way to start the acts of worship. Akhenaten called this smaller temple the Hut Aten, or Mansion of the Aten. He mentions it on the boundary stelae, and archaeologists working in the site have found bricks stamped with the word hut, or mansion or foundation. It's one of those nice moments where we can correlate text with archaeology, so the smaller temple is almost certainly the Hut Aten, Aten's mansion in the city. The Hut Aten stands in an interesting position. If we're measuring size, it's clearly secondary to the larger Per Aten, but it still occupies a commanding position within the central city. Just across from the great palace, and connected to it by a path or orchard, the Hut Aten is obviously significant in some way, but why? Well, the answer might lie in the realm of geometry. Some people say that Aket Aten, Amana, has a sort of symbolic arrangement, where several landmarks all connect to a central point of reference. The idea is that the temples, palaces, boundary stelae, and various other structures all point directly towards the king's tomb, hidden east of the city. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, yes, you can draw a line between one point and another and get a straight line, but that doesn't mean the ancients intended some kind of symbolic geometry. For my money, a line is more significant when it passes through more than two points. In other words, a line from A to B isn't much. A line from A to B to C 
That might be something. Funnily enough, we do find this in the small Aten temple. For the most part, Amarna's monuments and landmarks orient themselves according to the Nile River. Although the move to Amarna represented a major shift in priorities, Akhenaten and his architects still used the age-old reference points to plan their works. The river was the starting point, and everything else oriented to that. Well, with this small Aten temple we find another connection as well. Actually, we find two. The small Aten temple is perpendicular to the river, and its main axis points east, just like normal. Beyond that though, the temple also aligns with a distinct part of the city's eastern horizon, namely a noteworthy point in the cliffs at the edge of the city. If you visit Amarna around February, you will witness the sun appearing to rise from a valley or wadi in the east, and from that valley the sunrise will emerge, shining and resplendent. Interestingly, the axis of the small Aten temple points directly at that valley. This is part one of the temple's interesting alignment and connections. Part two happens when you go into the valley itself. Make your way into the wadi, follow the rocky twists and turns for a few kilometres, and you will eventually reach a place where Akhenaten and his family placed their tombs. Now, there are several tombs in this area, but only one is complete in any way, the tomb of the pharaoh himself. And it just so happens that this tomb lines up directly with the mouth of the valley and with the small Aten temple all the way back in the central city. The small temple or Hut Aten is the only structure in Aket Aten that connects directly with multiple points of reference. If the temple itself is point A, the valley in the eastern horizon is B, and the royal tomb is C. Just like that, we have a line of orientation that is more than coincidence, one with genuine significance and symbolic meaning. The question, of course, is what does this actually mean? Well, it's not 100% clear. Akhenaten never mentioned the alignment or anything like that. But for my money, the most likely explanation is that the small Aten temple was intended to act as Akhenaten's version of a mortuary temple. Traditionally, a pharaoh built his tomb in the hidden place, like the Valley of the Kings or the heart of a pyramid, but he commissioned a temple elsewhere for people to worship his name, image, and spirit, or ka. For 1500 years, Egyptian monarchs had used mortuary temples as a way of making their name live, a place for priests to give offerings and nourish their soul long after the ruler departed. Most kings have a mortuary temple, but Akhenaten is a rare exception. Which leads me to suspect that the king adapted this idea for his own purposes. Instead of building a conventional temple on the west bank of the Nile facing the sunset, Pharaoh reoriented his structure towards the east to the place of eternal sunrise. Since his tomb was also in the east, maybe he felt it was sensible to place the mortuary temple there as well. If that's the case, perhaps the small temple is actually Akhenaten's mortuary complex. I have to stress, this is my own interpretation, there's no hard evidence either way, it's just what makes sense to me. Certainly, the idea that the mortuary temple was in the middle of the city on the east bank of the river seems rather different from tradition. Then again, this is Akhenaten we're talking about, the man positively radiated novelty in his outlook on life. 
the small Aten temple is, for the most part, a condensed version of the great temple. Visitors entered from the west and made their way across an open space, with columns and courtyards defining the worship area. As they went through the temple, they crossed various thresholds, giving a sense of progression closer and closer to the Sacred Heart. Finally, a visitor came to the inner sanctuary, the shining structure of stone where altars or tables held offerings to the sun god. With sunlight all around and barely a whisper of shade, the priests, or the king, could raise up the good things, while a small crowd of privileged guests watched in awe. Apart from those features, the small Aten temple itself is not that distinctive. I've put some pictures on the podcast website so you can get a sense of what it looked like, but compared to the Great Temple, there's a lot less to talk about. It was a condensed version, still a place of valuable worship, but nonetheless a secondary structure to the much larger House of Aten. Speaking of worship, we've talked a lot about space and architecture, but what do we see of the rituals themselves? How did Akhenaten and his subjects depict the worship of Aten? Well, here are a few of the essentials. Among other things, we see great joy in the religion of Akhenaten, a profound sense of vivacity which comes forth at daybreak and permeates everything the light touches. In the art, we see a love of flowers, of things that grow, and of the fruits of the earth, wine, food, beer, and abundance. In the hymns to the Aten, we hear about people celebrate the sunrise by, quote, singing, chanting, and joyful shouting in the courtyard of the temple and in every temple in Aket Aten. Vivacity, joie de vivre, radiate out from Amana art and the sentiments expressed in the texts. We also see crowds, gatherings of people, celebrating the cult of the sun in tandem with Akhenaten. The people stand in the back, their arms raised, adoringly, towards the pharaoh and the light that shines out from him. They drink deep of their association with the king and with his sun god high above. Although there are several complicating factors to this relationship, which we'll see in a future episode, the sense of populism is somewhat strong up to a certain point. We also see a huge scale of offerings. Dozens of cattle, thousands of bread loaves, countless of jugs and beer and wine, and offering tables beyond number. We see processions of people bringing birds tied together, bouquets and bunches of flowers, vessels of gold and silver, furniture of high quality. The offering tables overflowed with all good things, and for those involved in producing and maintaining the temple supplies, the worship of Aten was a monumental task. The last key feature of Aten worship is visibility. When we see him, the king is out front, before his subjects, more public than ever before, and it certainly seems as though Akhenaten used pageantry as a central part of his rule. Yet, at the same time, the king is distant, with all sorts of barriers separating him physically from the people. Compared to earlier monarchs, Akhenaten is startlingly public, but the gulf between king and commoner is still vast. Arguably, it's even more noticeable than it was before. When you can see what you're missing out on, it seems that much more desirable. In this sense, we find visibility married to exclusivity. The ruler emphasized his own privilege by showing others exactly what they were missing out on. 
Going along with that exclusivity plus visibility aspect, there is the strange phenomenon of Aten itself. The sun god did not have statues or cult images. Since he was visible high above, there was no need for a wood or gold trinket to depict his magnificence. Instead, the solar god shone visible and resplendent. But that also meant that Aten was distant in a way that no other god had been before. Ordinarily, a priest or privileged worshipper might see the god's image up close, glittering quietly in its shrine. Now, the solar deity was visible to all, but his blinding radiance and vast distance made him utterly inaccessible, and no mortal could hope to reach him. This absence also changed the character of Aten temples in some fundamental aspects. Architectural design and layout started to follow new patterns with noticeable deviations from what came before. For Eric Hornung, enduring Egyptologist, the issues can be summarized like this. Quote, Previously, every Egyptian temple had been understood as a shrine for the cult image. Since the Aten had no image, the whole world was in fact his shrine. Aten temples were open above to the sunlight, and wherever he strode, the king was in contact with his god. End quote. Basically, Aten didn't need a statue, so he didn't need a conventional closed-in house. This was useful in some respects, but it also forced interesting changes. Professor Hornung continues, quote, Since his disc was accessible only to prayers and offerings, all the richness of the daily cult ritual that had been celebrated, purification, anointing, and clothing of the divine statue, no longer applied. A further consequence was that there was no longer a need for a holy of holies, a sanctuary shrine for an earthly cult image. The temple thus had no real axis, and the king's processional way ended at an elevated altar dedicated to the cult of the sun. End quote. In other words, with no need for a statue or conventional shrine, Aten temples didn't have the same internal logic as standard Egyptian monuments. Aten's temples deviate from the norm in simple ways. In the Great Temple, for instance, the complex as a whole is divided into two separate areas, and there is no road or pathway between them. This is different from a place like Karnak or Luxor, where you can pretty much walk in a straight line from the entrance to the sanctuary without missing a beat. So in that sense, Akhenaten's worship put less emphasis on direction compared to what came before. As long as a person was oriented eastward and pointing up towards the sky, a worshipper could present his gifts to the Aten. Once again, this all comes back to visibility, the sun god is always there. But unlike earlier temples with their small, tangible statues, there was no way to reach Aten and touch him, which might have been quite distressing for the sort of person who needs a direction or an object on which they can anchor their focus. Of course, Akhenaten had a solution for that, and we will explore that question in a future episode. For now, it's time to bring this discussion to a close. So what makes an Aten temple distinct from earlier Egyptian sanctuaries? As we've seen, there is a profound emphasis on openness, with sunlight reaching as many parts of the temple as possible. 
there is a focus on offerings, with thousands of tables holding great piles of goods for the god to touch and consume. And there is a lot of emphasis on the king, visible and central, the unique son of the god, holding the gifts up high. The two temples I have explored today were not the only religious centres in the new city. Indeed, there were about five others with varying purposes scattered throughout the larger area of Arket Aten. We will explore those temples in an upcoming episode, visiting the sanctuaries dedicated to the king and his family, and the fabulous pleasure gardens built in the names of Queen Nefertiti and Princess Merit Aten. But first, we have a loose end to tie up with Akhenaten himself. Having moved his residence to a new location and established the fundamentals of his city, Akhenaten had to take care of the larger dominion. He had to create an economic zone that could support the temples and people, and he had to choose individuals to operate the Aten temples themselves. So it's worth taking an episode to meet the men who became priests of Aten, the agents of the king in his new holy city. Join me soon for episode 119, in which we see the king's renewal of oaths to his god, and get in touch with the people who made the Aten temples work. That's episode 119, Priests and Provisions, coming soon. The History of Egypt podcast lives on the generous support of its patrons. My special thanks to Linda, my priest-level supporter, and to Steve, Claudia, and George, who became patrons of the show and have stuck with me for over a year. Thank you folks, you are the best. I am sure that Aten, high above, is sending blessings with his rays. Those blessings should arrive in about 8 minutes or so. The temples to Aten in the heart of Arket Aten still have many answers to give. Archaeological exploration continues every year, analysing different aspects and putting the disparate puzzle pieces together. There is also the work of restoration, an ongoing project to protect, conserve and rebuild parts of the temples, so that visitors can better imagine their design and locals can enjoy a more tangible connection with their ancient heritage. This conservation project is in need of financial support. If you can spare a dollar or two, I've put a link in the description where you can help. The music for the History of Egypt podcast was created by Keith Zizza and also by Derek and Brandon Feichter. Find links to their websites on the episode description. Also, a link to my Spotify playlist where I have over five hours of ancient Egyptian themed music. It's the stuff that helps me write, and if you're looking to be transported away for a few hours, I recommend it. <laughs>